Hello, I'm Marit Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to a wide range of wellness professionals ready to inform and inspire. Today's topic is Metaphors and Stories Can Support Us in Psychotherapy and Life. My guest is counseling psychologist and hypnotherapist Karen Stein from Johannesburg. Welcome back on the show, Karen. Thank you, Marie. It's a pleasure to be here. Karen, you're a counseling psychologist and hypnotherapist, like I said, but you're also a hypnobirthing instructor and fertile body method practitioner. Please tell us more about what you do. I like to say that I am someone who works with normal people. Many people fear that if you go to see a psychologist, it's because you have to be a little bit nutters or there's <laughs> something wrong with you or you're just not strong enough to cope with life. Um, but I think, in, particularly in counselling psychology, I work with normal people. The issues that we deal with are every day and in a little bit of recognition that we do the best that we can with what we have. And sometimes we just don't have enough. Um, we need to gain that little bit of a skill or a resource to help mobilize us forward again. Or sometimes we need to take stock and just sit back and review and make sure that we take the lessons from where we have been so that we can progress to that next level and not stay stuck in repeating that same cycle again. So normal, healthy people in a journey of discovery. Love the way you put that. When you and I were considering a theme for this podcast, you used the metaphor of life as a journey. You said, and I quote, The road is full of twists and turns and obstacles, and some people struggle with holes and the forks in the road. Then you mentioned that we often use stories and anecdotes to sustain us on this journey, and you called them patkos, which for those listeners who don't know Afrikaans literally means road food. So could you say more about that? I first want to pick up on the word story, where we define ourselves and the worlds that we live in by the stories that we tell the words that we use, the characters that feature, the details that we pick up on. And it is about being able to tell that story in a way that we are proud of it. There are no chapters that are sealed um, or that should be missed or skipped in the telling, but we can own that story and recognize that it belongs to us and it has helped to shape and create us. Now, the, the journey of um, the metaphorical road of life is one way in which we can tell that story, where it has a very clear, distinct beginning at the start of our lives. And sometimes the line of our story extends beyond that beginning. Um, the, the lives of our parents and our ancestors, all those past lives that led up to who we, you know, were meant to be, uh, that life that we were meant to live. Then at birth, we are born into a body, into a family, into a particular time and a place. That is that social and cultural context that kind of shapes and predicts and limits who we can be in this life. 
and the key people in our lives that are the players in our story that challenge us, that help us to grow, that create the experiences that we can live by. I think as you, as you described, the quality of the road is quite unique and different for all people. And it's about living our life, uh, walking our path, understanding that path and how to navigate that path. And hopefully today we can explore um, what are some of the tips and the tools to better navigate this wonderful journey of life. And if we can learn from experience, how can that aid us going forward and being the authors of the story of our life and writing the best story that we possibly can? You said we're going to look at four obstacles that we may encounter on this metaphorical road. Could you tell us what they are? For me, first and foremost, it's understanding that any road has traffic rules. Um, we have to be able to know what the red light and the green light is, which side of the road we have to drive on, where to stop, where to give way. And now when we speak about the metaphorical journey, they are these very clear, simple, universal rules that are just available for everyone. And so the trick is first to uncover, to name and define some of the rules that we live by. These rules develop throughout the course of life. We make up many of the rules as our adaptations and defensive mechanisms you know, that keep us safe, that keep us alive first and foremost. And after that, that that aims to have a little bit of fun in life as well, to be able to engage and enjoy. Um, it's also there to protect us, our integrity. So sometimes the rules are to keep us from doing something that could hurt or harm us, that could bring shame on us. And we figure this out as we live, we create our own rules. Sometimes these rules are taught to us, and this is where culture and family, religion and tradition play a very big role. And in the counselling process, it's very important that we take stock. What are these rules that I live my life by, and are they appropriate, or are they limiting? Are they healthy adaptations, or not? So I would like to tell a story which is going to be the first opportunity for you to reflect on perhaps some of the universal rules that you haven't yet considered, but also to think about your attitude and mentality in life and how that is a source for creating the rules we live by. So this is a story that I call The Father and the Son, although Alan Watts, who originally brought this story from the East and introduced it to the West, um, calls it the story of the Chinese farmer. So, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was a Chinese farmer and his son uh, farming in the mountains. Life was hard. Um, they didn't have many resources, subsistence farming that they had to do. And we know how villagers and our neighbours can be, and the lamentations of, oh, this is so terrible and life is so unfair and why you and this isn't right. But the father's response is quite stoic. Maybe, he says. Eventually, through a little bit of bartering and trade and really skipping a couple of meals so that he could sell some of the food, he managed to buy a packet of seeds 
and a very old horse. And this really changed his life. From having to use his hands and hand tools, now he could plow a bigger piece of land, he could sow his seeds and grow a bigger crop. And life seemed to turn up for him and look much better and brighter. And the villagers rejoiced. Oh, how lucky you are. Maybe God is smiling down upon you. And what have you done to, you know, bring this, this good luck upon yourself? Isn't this wonderful? And the father's response remained, maybe. Unfortunately, as uh, all old horses do, they get overworked. <laughs> and this one had to be put out to pasture. It had come to the end of its life and it could live the remainder of its days out in the field. And now, the father was in a bit of a dilemma because he had a bigger plot of land and more responsibilities and again only his two hands and not yet a different horse. What is he to do? And the neighbors and villagers jump in. Oh, this is terrible. How is your fate again turned? Why this is so bad? What have you done to bring this bad luck on you? Why can't things just ever work out for you? But the father's response was, maybe. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Maybe. Lo and behold, the horse didn't die. It caught a second breath <laughs> and it came back home. But not only did it come back home, it brought with it a pack of wild horses, a gift of nature. And the father gladly accepted this gift. He could have his son um, tame these horses and they could put them to work on the farm and this might be good for them. The villagers you can imagine their response to this happy gift. Oh, you are so blessed. And what happened in your life? And isn't this wonderful? But the father's response remained, maybe. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Maybe. The son got bucked off a horse in trying to tame the horses. Broke almost every bone in his body and is in bed, unable to help long recovery period ahead of him and now the father has all these horses <laughs> that he needs to take care of he still needs to tend his land and he's got a sick son the villagers oh this is so terrible poor you what are you going to do but the father's response remained maybe maybe it's good maybe it's bad maybe two weeks later there's a knock on the door these are the conscription officers of the army. Oh. Please give us your young sons, young men. We're going to war. But this son couldn't go. He was in bed, <laughs> recovering. And he soon recovered. And he was able to carry on his work with the horses. He was able to help his father on the farm. And together, they were able to take care of the community and all the wives and daughters who had lost their fathers and sons. So, when Alan Watts told this story, um, we can speculate, you know, what, what are some of the rules of life mm. that he was hinting at in telling this story? What do you get, mate, when you hear this story? I think, immediately think about perspective. Because having lived quite a few decades myself, when I look back, there were so many 
things that looked like huge obstacles, you know, and also then the joyful things, and then they change again. Yes, yes, that impermanence of life is hard and it's good. Mm. Life definitely is unfair. Not all people (laughs) start with the same gifts in life. Um, But it keeps changing, that Mm. flux and that flow of life. And that might be one of the first rules that Mm. we can agree upon. Yes. If we can accept that there will be ups and downs, that you are not deserving of the challenges that come your way. But challenges will come your way, and it's your responsibility to deal with it. Mm. I think um, there are so many that we can really peel away in this one. But the, the, the subtle hints go towards some of the universal truths that perhaps also have roots in Eastern philosophy. Um, one, life is hard and good people sometimes experience bad things and bad people do not always experience bad things. They can also have good things. But... Suffering is inevitable to some extent. However, our suffering will be worse if we have expectations that we should not suffer, that it should be easy, that if I'm a good person, if I pray, if I am faithful, if I work hard, good things should come my way. And that isn't always true. What is, is. And what is the best that I can do with that is a very healthy motto or a rule to have for yourself. Now, if we want to get rid of our suffering, sometimes we have to let go of the expectations of what we think it should be or must be, ought to be. What should a good wife or mother do? Um, What should a good parent do for their children? And we experience so much pain by comparing where we are in the present to where we think we should be. And the distance between where I am and where I want to be or think I should be really equals the intensity of our suffering. And if we can just snip through that tension, cut away those expectations and just allow ourselves to be where we are, whether it's hard or whether it's good, without judgment. And I think the Father had that beautiful attitude of non-judgment. It is what it is. It's neither good nor bad, but I have to deal with it. What's mm. the best that I can do mm. with where I am? And then the last thing was to not foreclose on your possible path. Just because I started out poor and with nothing doesn't mean I am poor and therefore I will have nothing. It's not a curse in life. Life is what you make of it, how much you believe in yourself and a little bit how how hard you are prepared to work and persevere to get that. And also being the best person that you can be. Just because the father and son started out with nothing, they weren't all crazy wanting to keep all of their wealth and their Mm -hmm. success to themselves. They were willing to share. They had that love and compassion for others because of their own suffering too. So lovely to take a story like that and play around And in psychotherapy, different stories will appeal to different people. But it's important that you take what resonates with you or with that stretch of the path that you are traveling on at that moment. And perhaps later, you take something else. Mm. Thank you. That's very insightful. 
Karen, what do you do when you come across a hole in the road? For the hole in the road, I want you to imagine, um, maybe reflecting on Portia Nelson's poem called There's a Hole in My Sidewalk. I tell the story slightly different, but you can look it up. It's a, a lovely poem to read. So imagine you are walking down a stretch of road and you are just taking in the world around you. And all of a sudden, everything grows dark. You're just somewhere and it's pitch dark and you don't know how you got there. After a little bit, you figure out that you've fallen into a hole. You don't quite know how you got there. You didn't plan to get there. And it wasn't your mistake. It wasn't intentional. But you are there and it's your crisis that you have to deal with. And you try lots of different things to try and get out of this hole. And maybe you try, dig little steps. You Maybe you look for a source of light. You can at least read this unfamiliar space you are in. And it takes forever to get out and a lot of help from others to get out of this stretch of challenge. And when you get out, you immediately go back. You, know, you just <laughs> first need to rest and recuperate. There's no carrying on. <laughs> but when you're ready, you take on that piece of road again. And perhaps you fall into that hole again. Because the first time you didn't actually take stock of how you got there. You couldn't quite prevent it. And this time you're in it again. What is different this time is you've been in the hole. You've done a little bit of groundwork. You know it's hard. But you know you can get out. It still takes time. It still is harrowing. And when you get out, you still need to go back and lick your wounds and <laughs> ready yourself to take on the road again. The third time, taking on that piece of road, you're a little bit more vigilant. You now know for sure it's a hole in the road you need to look out for. But you still fall into the hole. You couldn't quite judge the terrain to safely navigate past it. Maybe it was your fault. <laughs> It's still hard to get out of the hole, and you do. And you go back to lick your wounds, to take stock, to recuperate, before you're ready to take it on the fourth time. The fourth time. You are highly cautious, mm. and you take a very wide berth mm. <laughs> around this hole, and you get past it. The fifth time, you take a different road. Oh. So what do you take about how to navigate holes in the road from this story. You know, it, it may not have a direct bearing on this, but what I've been thinking of is that falling into a certain hole, like being in a relationship that is not quite what it should be, it's very difficult to get out, often because of what you mentioned before, the rules that, that other people taught you. So I guess when you're in the hole the first time, it's helpful to start exploring why you got there in the first place and why you are struggling to get out. I love that. It's not a mistake that you're in the hole. It's an experience that you can learn from. But it's hard. And those lessons, if we do not consciously register them, we might unconsciously repeat them. And sometimes it becomes a bad habit or almost an imperative that we can't stop ourselves from doing. I remember as a kid at school, I had this friend who kept making the same mistakes 
in dating, uh, finding a cute boy, but then meeting another cute boy and wanting to date <laughs> both cute boys at the same time and one inevitably finding out and then birth relationships mm. being broken up. And that happened again and again and again. And it felt like running straight into a brick wall. We have to realize that when we keep doing the same things, we will get the same results and somehow give ourselves the opportunity and find the courage to do something different. There's no guarantee it's going to work, <laughs> but we can try it and we can learn from that experience and little by little get a little bit wiser and make different decisions until finally we can choose a completely different road. But I see this happen so frequently and this is one of the reasons why people often enter therapy. Yes. That feeling of stuckness where suddenly the road is gone. I cannot see how I'm going to get out of my situation. I cannot see that my life can carry on beyond this. This is just as if the road completely stopped. But I want us to think about the metaphor of a whole as something that is scary at first, but we can get out of it. And the road definitely carries on beyond it. But we have to keep going until we have enough wisdom to take that path that gets us beyond it. And lo and behold, there will be other holes or obstacles on the path. Oh, yes. <laughs> but as long as we don't keep getting stuck in the same mm. one, we mm. might grow and evolve and see mm. a little bit more scenery mm. along the side mm. of the road. Mm. And I must say it's very satisfying. I mean, whether it takes one five years to to finally take the different road or not, it's very satisfying to find that one has grown. Absolutely. And to be gentle on yourself, have compassion for the fact that you made that mistake. Uh, some people have a growth mindset and they look at life as an opportunity to learn through their experiences, through the mistakes they make. But other people have a fixed mindset and they believe either you have it or don't. And if I got it wrong, that means I will never get it right and I might as well give up. And that is something that we have to question for ourselves. Have I got a fixed mindset or am I adopting an open mindset that allows a little bit of room for growth and opportunity, permission to make mistakes mm. and learn through mm. that experience? And then, Karen, those forks in the road, how does one handle them? It is the most frustrating experience when suddenly you feel there are all these potential doors into the future. And if I take this road, that's going to happen, but I'm also going to miss out on this. But if I take that road, it might be good. I have no idea where that road is going, but it is here and it <laughs> seems like the best option. And we can feel completely overwhelmed and stuck. And if we want to move forward, we've got to choose one of them. Now, for, for this uh, leg of our journey, the path course I would like us to digest is the poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Now, it's so interesting. When I was searching for this poem, I remembered it as The Road Less Traveled, which, which is not the name of the poem, no. <laughs> but only one of the interpretations. And it's open for you to interpret, but let's explore the dilemma that our protagonist faces. So he, he writes, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveller, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could. 
to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. So what do we learn about the crossroads from this story? It makes me think of that adage which says, do what you can with what you have. Um, and then also, it brings me back to your farmer with his maybe, because there isn't really, well, there isn't really a way to know which one is the best one. So you're going to take the first one. Is that the best one? Maybe. <laughs> the same goes for the second. We don't really know. And we have become so eager, so informed in the world and the age in which we live in, that we believe control and power resides in our ability to predict exactly what's going to be on the road before we are willing to make that commitment and take it as it comes. That is a very profound statement. Could you repeat the one about the control and the power and the ability to predict? Yes, yes. If we live by the rule that we are not allowed to make mistakes and our ability to get it right depends upon our ability to plan and know what is coming. And that almost sets us up for failure mm. and for disappointment because we really do not know what lies ahead on the road. Now, I was quite surprised to reflect on, on this poem as the road not taken. Mm. Those regrets, those fears of the turnoffs I didn't make. And what might have happened if only I did that? If only I could go back and not have made that decision, my life would have been so much better. If only I didn't get into a relationship with that person or take that job, then that wouldn't have happened. And we can spend so much time punishing ourselves and worrying about the path we had not taken that we, in the end, do not take a path if we worry about which one could be the best and we stay stuck. We're not progressing at all. So for us to move forward, we have to make a commitment to either of these roads. And the protagonist told us he studied as far as he could. Mm. They looked more or less the same as far as he could see. There wasn't any clear indication of which was the better one. There's the suspicion they both go somewhere. <laughs> And they might take him to the same or to unique destinations. If we had a map, we might be able to see different paths converge at different times or somehow in roundabout ways reach a similar destination. But there's no way of knowing for sure. And that is the scary part. We might need to relinquish some of that control mm. and need to know and carefully plan everything ahead and take the attitude that you professed. 
be ready and willing to do the best that you can with what you have and go for it. Do the best that you can because the, the protagonist also tells us a little bit. Um, if you committed to a path, you might rationalize it as this was the best path for me. Because we don't really know, but what we do know is that good things came from taking that path. And that was the path that grew us. And we can't really go back and do a do-over. Mm. You know, mm. that, that part mm. of the story has passed. Mm. But we can treasure that which we have and look upon it fondly and take the opportunities and the learning that that stretch of the road offered. So I remember the first time I was at a fork in the road being young, I must have been a teenager or maybe even before, I thought, oh, I don't know what is the right path. If only someone could tell me what is the right path and I could have that guarantee that good things will come when I take that path and the bad things can be limited. Until my wise counselor told me there is no right or wrong path. And whatever your soul is meant to discover or uncover, the challenges that your soul came to deal with in this lifetime, it will find you on the path. Mm. <laughs> no worry. Take any path. Your challenges will find you there. You will meet your angels on the path as well. And there will be road signs that we can follow. And I think that is my, my next point where I want to stop off for a little bit of a moment. What are these road signs? You know, how do I know that this is a good thing or this is a bad thing? And one of the, the tips or the tools I've gathered on my road might not be suited for everyone. But if you are someone into a little bit of fantasy, maybe religion or spirituality, and you consider the divine guidance or forces in life that can accompany you on your journey... It's about learning how to connect with the magic in the universe that speaks with us, that guides us. And those angel signs and symbols that show up on the road. And there are many, but maybe we can talk about a couple. Yes. So um, the one that I really like is synchronicity. Now, synchronicity is when a similar type of event happens in a a relatively short span of time, almost as a repetition, to really draw your attention to it. It might be that your teacher gives you a specific message, then your best friend gives you almost that exact same message, and tonight you switch on the TV and the news broadcaster gives that exact same message. When it comes in threes or more, that message is meant for you. There is part of your awareness that has attuned, that wants you to pay attention to that message. So, synchronicity, look out for it. Think angel numbers are another very fun way in which we can do it. And you don't need a guidebook or anything to interpret it. But look out for numbers that find us on the computer screen, on your cell phone, um, on the dashboard of the car, the registration plates of the cars that pass us by, the bill, the telephone numbers that we have to dial, um, and look at numbers that seem to repeat, that jump out at you. Um, maybe it is something like 1111 or 123, 123 that you keep <laughs> seeing in sequence again and again. That repetition might be significant for you. Look it up 
and see what it means. And use that as a bit of a meditation or a tool for reflection. For You're talking about numerology now, when you consider looking it up. Just like numerology, we know that is significant. But even Google, angel meaning of number one, two, three, one, ah. two, three. So whether you want to make an appointment with a numerologist. <laughs> now, I was wondering how to Google. Yes. Someone uses angel meaning. Yes. Mm. Or what is the significance of 1111? Simple Google search, it should get you there. Personal signs and symbols are another one that is very significant. And if you, if you pray for guidance, how do I know when I receive that guidance, when that prayer has been answered? And sometimes setting up a tool of communication through angel symbols can really help. And there are universal symbols like the rainbow that we know that offers us hope um, after a challenging time. Butterflies are quite universal symbols. But then we also have our personal symbols that maybe come out of the stories of our lives. And where, for me, for example, a coin is one of those symbols. I was on holiday with friends at school and we had to use the telephone booth to make calls back home. Those ones that would eat your coins. Only this one ate and wouldn't let me call. And I was so angry. I smashed down the handle. It stole my money and I couldn't connect back home. And in the smashing, something must have dislodged and it sounded like I won the lotto. <laughs> and this phone just spewed out coins that I had more than enough money for me and all my friends to call back home the entire holiday and buy ice cream How as lovely. well. <laughs> and so since then, the coin has taken on a significant message for me of things might seem stuck or blocked and cause you a bit of frustration. But hang in there because it will come unstuck and be very fortunate. So I am always on the lookout for when a coin crosses my path. I can remember I went for an interview for a position that I really wanted. And there were so many good candidates and only limited spaces. I felt comfortable about the interview, but I couldn't be sure that I was going to get it. When I got back to my car... It was a five rand coin lying right by my door. Very obvious. And I don't think it was mine. <laughs> I would have known if I had dropped it. And when I picked it up, I felt that message as a symbol of my angels to reassure me. Do not get dismayed when things are stuck at first. Have faith that they will get unstuck and that it will be fortunate enough. So that happened to be the turn of events. I got the call that I didn't get the position. And I was a little bit sad, but also still keeping the options open. I received my sign. And a few hours later, I got a call back to say, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we made a mistake. Actually, we want to offer you the position. Are you ready to accept oh. or not? Mm -hmm. And I felt that coin was so timely in just warning me, helping me to prepare. And I felt that divine guidance in my life there as well. So that, of course, is a symbol that comes from my story. Mm. I wonder which symbols will come out of your lessons that you have learned on your path. Oh, there are quite a few, but the, the one that I'm going to mention is one that will be shared by 
many other people, and I'm specifically thinking of a dear friend, and those are feathers. And she often, when she thinks of her mother who passed away years ago, she will see a feather. And I actually associate feathers with the fact that we receive guidance. You know, it doesn't really matter what the meaning is because I think the meaning can change. But to me, it's... It is a, a comforting sign that there is guidance. And I'll, I will tell you, I get feathers in the most unusual places. In the house, in a bowl, for instance, you know, where there are no birds living in this house. In strange places where one would not expect them. And to me, it really is the, the thing of, I am blessed with guidance. So that is the important thing. And that is the magic of life that I think we can choose to tune into, that brings us so much comfort and reassurance and fuel to move forward. Life is hard, full stop, that we have agreed upon, and it's unfair. But sometimes it is just so nice to know that I'm not alone. <laughs> yes. That it's my responsibility to make the decisions and to deal with the consequences, but I'm not alone. Someone holds my hand. And I think childbirth was one of those experiences that taught me that lesson. note on what I do. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles on living a happier and healthier life by interviewing coaches, therapists and other wellness experts from over the world. You'll find this content on my website www.mariehitsneiman.co.za and it's there to help you find just the right helping professional when you need one. The section Up Close and Personal on my website offers you a glimpse of the person behind many of the experts I feature. If you're a wellness expert keen on getting more in-person or online clients or creating worldwide awareness of an issue close to your heart, let's talk about co-creating a podcast or article or perhaps featuring you in a South African magazine. You'll find more information under services on my website. Now, back to my guest. If I'm pregnant, this baby has to come out of my body and I'm the one that has to do the birthing. But I don't have to do it alone. And it's so much better when you've got that team of loving support and people who believe in you and who offer you something to drink or to eat, who light the candles and play the music and just enjoy that space as much as you can together with you. But this is your job to do. But with that comfort and reassurance of that divine guidance, it makes all the difference. Now, speaking about angels... um, Doreen Virtue talks about the archangels and each one of them having a kind of a different job in our lives. And I love Archangel Uriel. If you studied his picture, it looks like this wise old being who holds a tiny little lantern up to his chest. And you can see he's standing in a, a darkish landscape and just this little light 
that he carries with his chest. And the message of Uriel is to trust yourself because your faith and your soul's light is enough. It's bright enough just as that little lantern would give you enough light to see where you're going to place your next foot. It's not a spotlight that's mm. going to light up the entire road that you can see exactly where you're going to mm. step and navigate the obstacles. No, but it's enough for you to take that next step comfortably. And as you do, the light moves forward with you and it lights up the next step for you to take. And that soul light is something that we sometimes disconnect from on the journey of life. We switch off our gut feeling. We switch off our sense of spirituality. We switch off our feelings. We switch off our ability to think and we just act automatically. We switch off to the magic and the wisdom and the guidance that is available in our surrounds. And maybe we can think about what I can do to tune back into that to use it a little bit more on the journey ahead. So how does that help us deal with the crossroads? Whichever road you take, it will take you where you need to be. And there should be wonderful things on that path and many challenges that you will get through with love and guidance. Just take a path. <laughs> it will be okay. Mm. Now, Karen. What is the next morsel of patkos that you're going to offer us? Aha. I remember being in a workshop and listening to Sarah Kamalu speak. And her motto of failing forward. She was the first South African woman to summit Everest. And she came to tell us her story, which I think is food for thought, particularly when we consider that phenomena of I've got a goal and I want to achieve it and I try and I'm not quite getting there. When do I give up or when do I persevere and carry on? So I think Sarah Kamala's story is helpful for this one. So she started out as an average mom like you and me, two kids, a job, wanting to do some good in her community. And together with a couple of women, they wanted to um, make money to support a local library for, for underprivileged children. And their idea was to climb Kilimanjaro. And they got lots of sponsors, and I think they made something ridiculous like a million rand that they could put towards their library project from climbing a mountain. And it was hard. Her very first climb, she had never climbed before this, and she succeeded. And coming back from this experience, she thought, wow, that was amazing. It was hard, but they did it. And if she could do this, what else can she do? And so Everest came into her mind as perhaps another interesting mountain she could climb and another um, avenue for, you know, getting some money to support her local community. It wasn't a very easy journey. And um, in her book, I see she, she newly published a book called My Journey to the Top of the World and the lessons I learned along the way. Uh, she clearly tells the story, but I'm going to tell you some of the bits and pieces that I remember, and maybe not factually 100%. But the very first time she went as a novice to Everest, 
she realized how difficult and in how many stages this journey is taken. First, you hope and pray that that plane lands on the most treacherous and shortest landing strip in the middle of the mountains that you can imagine. You cannot believe that a plane could land there. But having overcome that first hurdle, um, you have to work your way up to base camp. You don't start at base camp. And she didn't get beyond base camp on her first time. But she said she learned a lot. She learned that you need the right gear. Uh, what to wear, what to pack in your bag, what's the best bag to use. And she learned some other tips. How can you train so that you can better adjust to the altitude and to the levels of oxygen and thistles? So when she returned back home, almost like the villagers in the Chinese story, everybody was so disappointed. Oh no, you didn't make it, you failed. Said, oh no, I didn't fail, I didn't summit. But I didn't fail. Wow, I learned so much. That's definitely going to be at an advantage the next time I go. And there was no doubt in her mind that she would go again. So the next year, you know, it's a bit of an issue to get the leave and the money it takes to get there and to secure the sponsorships. But she pulled a rabbit out of the hat and she did it again. Only this time, she still didn't summit. But she made it to base camp. And at base camp, she got a very different experience of the mountain, the people on the mountain. But she didn't fail because her equipment wasn't good enough. She fell because there was an avalanche that killed 16 Sherpas. Goodness. And they just said it's too treacherous. They will not recommend that this journey continues. And they called it off and she had to go back home. Third time, similar story. Um, but there was also an issue with her oxygen mask. It malfunctioned and she nearly died. She was left for dead <laughs> on the side of the road while the other hikers climbed forward because her oxygen mask couldn't take her further and she wasn't in a space to move back down and others couldn't move back down with her. Luckily, there was another company that came along and could take her back to the camp and she survived this ordeal. She almost didn't make it. But that didn't deter her. And all the people's woes and lamentations because she didn't succeed didn't deter her either. Because she heard this time, apparently if you cycle, it really helps with the fitness that you can do better. And so she started cycling and running. And unfortunately, in doing one of these grand bicycle races in South Africa, she had a horrible accident and broke so many bones. Her physio and her doctor said she'll be lucky to walk let her run, run or get back on a bike and she should forget about Everest. And she was still considering this. The thing that saved her is she had already signed up for the Soweto Marathon at that time. And it's a lot of money you pay for these marathons. She didn't want to waste the money. So she did the rehab that she could to just get her to the Soweto Marathon. And she'll worry about Everest another day. And when she finished the Soweto Marathon, she said, well, if I can run a marathon. I can climb a mountain. Why not? But she was a little bit more cautious and she put it off. You know, she had, you know, three, four failed attempts already. She's not sure she can go for it again. Until her young son, I think he was 12 at that time. He told her, he said, Mommy, you and I both know you're going to go back to Everest. Just do it now. <laughs> Get it over with. When are you going? 
And she realized she had almost stopped believing in herself. She almost wanted to read all these bad things that were happening to her and these failed attempts as signs that she's not meant to do this. Signs she shouldn't go forward. Just get the message already after the bicycle accident. And then she realized she is going to go back. And a fifth time, she summited. She made it to the top. And you can look up the beautiful pictures of her at the very top, planting that flag, claiming that piece of land and that victory as the first black woman from South Africa to summon Everest. And then she heard a mother's voice in her head. So now that you've done this, what's next? (laughs) And her life really changed after making that summit. It was... She was now considered a mountaineer and an adventurer, and people paid her to climb mountains. And she can Mm -hmm. take her philanthropic work to new heights Mm -hmm. and new levels. Mm -hmm. Why did she not stop believing? What was it that allowed her to persevere and to pursue that dream and not stop there, take it even further? So we can take lots of inspiration from Sarah's story. Yes, yeah, there's almost nothing else to say after that. <laughs> you know, I, I see this so frequently. Um, one of the, the stories that often crosses my path because I work with fertility is people who over-identify with an aspect of their story. And we might call it a problematic narrative or maybe a single narrative. The doctor told me I'm infertile. I cannot have children. And it's almost like The road that I'd envisioned for myself ends. And I am forced onto a road of no kids and unhappiness that I don't want to be on. And people can see that road and they experience the loss and depression of the life they couldn't have. We have to ask ourselves, what do I really, really want? And how far am I prepared to go to get it? And some people will say, I will keep going trying different things. And if there's 101 ways to do it, if I try number four, we have to be so careful not to feel that our failed attempts are signs that we're not meant to do this, that we will never be able to do it. We can keep going for as long as we possibly can and for as far as our resources can take us. I remember the story of Tersha Albertang in her book called So Close, talking about the harrowing ordeal of her fertility journey from trying natural conception and doctors and diets and cutting things out to eventually artificial insemination and the whole IVF route. And I I can't remember 100%, but there might have been um, egg donations and surrogates And eventually she had her family. It was like 11 attempts before she made it. Not everyone has the financial resources to do that or the self-belief that they can do it. But she knew what she was capable of and what her financial resources and limitations were. And she took it as far as she could and she achieved her goal. Don't give up after the first few attempts, but see what you learned, how you are actually failing forward until that takes you to your goal. Every drop in the bucket helps to fill that bucket and is not a waste. Thank you, Karen. And I do wish the listeners could see 
the animated way in which you talk about these things, you know, that sparkle in the eyes. And I think that is what, what hope looks like. To have a disappointment or an, a heartache and then to find a way to go forward again and then, of course, with the support one needs. So thank you so much for sharing your podcast with us. Thank you, Maru. My pleasure. Before I let you go, may I ask you a fun question? Oh, yes. When I say misty morning, Karen, where does your mind take you? I might be on the pathway in Robert Frost's yellow forest <laughs> with my camera and my hiking boots searching for colored leaves, for hearts and for mushrooms. Maybe a couple of berries that I can snack mm. along the way. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. And to our listeners, it was good of you to join us. I'd be honored if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. If you found this episode inspirational, please share it with someone you care about. Go to my website www.marietsneiman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on how to live a happier life and have more fulfilling relationships. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneeman, Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me with original music by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 